people are probably used to hearing about the fight, flight or freeze response. And what happens to this is if we experience trauma, our stress response is chronically activated. So it's kind of like we're stuck in our fight, flight or freeze response. Welcome to season three of My Amazing Body, a podcast where we explore interesting, unknown and misunderstood parts of your body. This is episode five of our special five-part series focused specifically on mental health and well-being. This episode of My Amazing Body contains a first-hand account of what it's like to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. It references trauma. If you or someone you know needs support, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if it's an emergency, please call triple zero immediately. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a treatable anxiety disorder affecting around 3 million Australians at some point in their lives. We spoke with specialist psychologist Natasha Briffer from Metro South Mental Health Services to find out more about this condition. When we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, what we're talking about is a set of reactions that can develop after someone has been through or experienced a traumatic event. Now, a traumatic event can be any situation that involves a threat to someone's life or where someone has experienced serious injury. And most people will experience at least one type of traumatic event during their lives. So a traumatic event usually are things like a natural disaster, a serious accident. It can be things like war, physical assault, sexual assault as well. And usually in the first kind of few days or few weeks after experiencing a traumatic event, people will feel quite intense emotions. They will feel strong feelings of fear, sadness, guilt, anger or grief. However, generally, these feelings will resolve on their own with support of friends and family and sometimes catching up with the GP and and seeing a psychologist or a counsellor and the person usually recovers. Natasha says that if these feelings don't go away on their own and last for weeks or months after the incident, then it could be PTSD. If the distress continues, and sometimes it does, for weeks or months, then it may mean that someone has gone on to develop PTSD. Natasha explains that there are two types of post-traumatic stress disorder. Type 1 refers to a single traumatic event, while type 2 is trauma that has happened over a long period of time. There are different types of PTSD. We have type 1 and type 2. So type 1 PTSD is usually related to a single well-defined event, such as a car accident or being involved in a robbery. Usually symptoms develop within six months of the traumatic event occurring, and symptoms need to occur for more than four weeks to be considered type 1. And about 10% of people who do experience a traumatic event will develop PTSD. We also know about type 2 or complex trauma. So this is trauma that's occurred over someone's lifespan. So they've had exposure to multiple or ongoing stressful events. 
usually starting in childhood. However, it can be something that's occurring ongoing in adulthood as well. Like with many mental health conditions, symptoms of PTSD can vary from person to person. Psychologist Natasha says these symptoms can be physical and emotional. It might be suddenly acting or feeling like the traumatic event is happening again in the present moment. Feeling really emotionally upset when something reminds you of the trauma and it might be things like changes to our bodies. So we might feel really tense. We might have an increased heart rate. But it might also be things like we might see a person in a particular clothing, so some jeans or some certain shoes, and it might bring really intense emotions to the surface. And having intense physical reactions, so heart racing, dizziness, feeling shaky when something or someone reminds you of the traumatic event. The second category is avoiding reminders of the event or the second set of symptoms. So trying not to think about what's happened or the emotions related to what's happened or just trying to avoid being around things in the world that remind you of what happened. The third category is experiencing negative thoughts and feelings. So it might not be remembering important parts of what happened during the event, developing strong beliefs about oneself, such as I am bad, or the world is completely dangerous, or others can't be trusted. Believing that the traumatic event is one's own fault, and it's our fault why the trauma happened, or we might blame someone else who's not directly responsible. Really intense and long-lasting feelings such as fear, guilt, and shame. Not being interested anymore in activities that you used to enjoy before the event feeling distant or cut off from other people, and having real difficulty experiencing positive emotions, so happiness, love, and excitement. And the fourth category are symptoms that have us feeling really wound up. So feeling quite irritable, we might lash out and be violent towards others. There might be excessive use of drugs or alcohol or other unhelpful behavior such as self-harm or suicidal behavior or just generally putting yourself in dangerous situations, being really alert or on guard, which we call hypervigilance, being really jumpy, so if there's a really loud noise or if you are touched unexpectedly, problems in concentrating and challenges on focusing on tasks and difficulties falling asleep. Natasha says that you don't need to be the person experiencing trauma to develop PTSD. Vicarious trauma is when you witness someone else's trauma, like if you're a first responder to an incident. The other important element is vicarious trauma. That's the idea that we can experience PTSD or we can be diagnosed with PTSD after having worked with people who have experienced traumatic events or sometimes the nature of the work that we do can be traumatising in itself, which is then what we call vicarious trauma. Experiencing trauma can have an effect on the brain. It can change the way your brain develops and also the way we regulate our emotions and respond to stressful situations. When people experience trauma, it does have a ripple effect on the brain. Now, if we talk about PTSD that occurs across someone's lifespan, so that complex PTSD or type 2 PTSD, 
This actually alters brain development in children and adolescents. And we know when when kids are between sort of birth and two years old, there's a critical period of brain development, similarly for kids that are aged between six and 12 years. Now, if someone has had repeated exposure to traumatic events during that time, then the wiring and firing of the brain, if you like, doesn't occur in the way that it's meant to. So what this can mean is that the areas of the brain that help us to regulate our emotions, help us to regulate our behavior, they aren't developed in the same way a healthy brain that hasn't experienced trauma develops. We also know that the connections between parts of the brain, so our limbic system, that's our emotion center of the brain, it's usually regulated by what is called the frontal lobe, so it's our thinking, rational part of the brain. The connection between the two gets really um, severed, and so we're not able to rationalize our emotion brain, which means our emotions take over a lot of the time. We also know that when we have altered brain development, this can impact or disrupt how our stress response or our nervous system functions. So people are probably used to hearing about the fight, flight or freeze response. And what happens to this is if we experience trauma, our stress response is chronically activated. So it's kind of like we're stuck in our fight, flight or freeze response. If you've heard of cortisol before, you'll know that it's the hormone released by your body in response to stress. Natasha says that when you've experienced trauma, your cortisol levels increase and your ability to manage stress becomes impaired. This leads to increased cortisol levels and chronic stress in our body, which can lead to increased inflammation in our body. And so our way of managing stress then becomes really faulty and we can develop really unhelpful ways of managing stress or emotional distress over time. The other way that the brain is impacted on, particularly when we're thinking about trauma and memory, there are two components or two areas of the brain. So the first I've talked a little bit about already, so our limbic system or our amygdala. This is the, the brain's alarm system, it's our emotion centre, it's our threat centre. So it's designed to keep us safe and when our threat system is activated, that's when that fight, flight or freeze system kicks in. But the problem with the amygdala is it's really not good at differentiating between real threat, so someone standing in front of us threatening to attack us, versus just thinking about that happening. So that's the first part. The second part of the brain that's impacted is our hippocampus. So our hippocampus is like the librarian for our memory. So when it works effectively, it allows us to kind of neatly tag, stamp our memories, and then it allows us to neatly file away the memories in chronological order. The problem is, though, is when our amygdala, so when our emotion brain, our threat system is activated, this kind of impacts on our filing system. Essentially, it scrambles all the files, and the hippocampus doesn't tag the correct time to each memory. So what does that mean? Well, a memory that is actually from about 10 years ago gets time-stamped as if it's happened today, and it makes people feel like those memories are happening in the here and the now. 
Studies show that trauma not only alters how your brain functions, but it can actually shrink parts of your brain too. We also know in neuroimaging studies, so when we take pictures of the brain, our librarian, so our hippocampus, is actually reduced in volume. So about 8% in some studies, the hippocampal volume is less in people who have experienced um, trauma. Similarly, our frontal lobe, so the part of the brain that has to do with planning and being rational and problem solving, it also can be reduced in size, which you can see would start to have some serious impacts to people and their lives. The other thing to consider is that when people have experienced overactive fight, flight or freeze response, this also has an impact on what we call our window of tolerance. So our window of tolerance is where things kind of feel just right, where we're able to cope with the the punches, if you like, that life throws at us. We're kind of calm, but not too tired. We're alert, but we're not too anxious. So we can kind of just get through life. When we experience trauma, our window of tolerance shrinks. So we have less room to move in that space. And what that can mean is that we're more easily dysregulated. So this is when we start to feel quite agitated. We might feel really anxious or revved up or angry. We don't feel completely out of control, but we also don't feel comfortable. When people become dysregulated and they've experienced trauma, they can then either become hyper-aroused, so they might feel really, really extremely anxious or angry or completely out of control, And unfamiliar or threatening feelings can really overwhelm us and we might want to completely run away or stand up and fight. Or we can have a hypoarousal response. So this is when we feel completely zoned out and numb, um, both emotionally and physically. And time can go missing when we're in this space. And it might feel like that in that moment we're completely frozen. It's not something that we choose, but it's our body taking over. Natasha says that managing PTSD is an individual experience. While some people will find tools to help them manage their symptoms as they arise, others will want to unpack the trauma through psychological therapies. But the key to effective treatment is getting support. There are several evidence-based treatments that have good efficacy in treating PTSD. It's just helping people to get the support that they need. It's really important when we're talking about treatment to understand that not everybody has to have what we would call trauma treatment, if you like. So often what we're doing when we're working with someone who's experienced trauma is we're really just helping them to manage the here and the now. So how what's happened to them in the past is impacting their day-to-day life and giving skills and strategies about how to be able to cope with, say, the emotions that they might feel or the thoughts that they might be having. And for some people, stabilizing the here and the now is actually enough. For other people, they might stabilize their here and their now so they're able to get through their day-to-day activities, they're able to get through life, you know, okay, without having to go and open Pandora's box in doing trauma treatment. But for other people, they will want to unpack that and that's also okay. So there are several psychological therapies that people can access through um, private psychology or through mental health services to support with that work. 
Keeping your mind engaged with new ideas and experiences is an important part of strengthening your mental well-being. Doing regular mental challenges helps train your mental pathways. Let's give it a go. Can you solve this brain teaser? We'll reveal the answer at the end of the episode. My life is often a volume of grief. Your help is needed to turn a new leaf. Stiff is my spine and my body is pale, but I'm always ready to tell a tale. What am I? The next story is a first-hand account of what it's like to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. If you or someone you know needs support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if it's an emergency, please call 000 immediately. Well, I'm Kev, who's a lived experience uh, peer support worker and, and a consultant to the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. Kev is a retired firefighter living on the Sunshine Coast. He's also a Beyond Blue volunteer speaker and has had a lived experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was a uh, firefighter in Queensland in Brisbane, north, uh, from 1983 through to 2008, so 25 years. And I hadn't really known much about what, what post-traumatic stress was. It just uh, sort of manifested itself over time because... I'd woken up in so many uh, anxiety attacks and, and um, wasn't functioning well. So, um, and coming out of nightmares every night. And so the, I suppose the crux was that uh, one night I actually went to the study uh, and uh, in the dark wrote a resignation letter, uh, probably about a page and a half, uh, quite scathing and damning towards the institution that I thought was causing me to revisit a, a nightmare that was just a continuous one for me. And I, I did that, but uh, disturbed my wife, Jo, uh, when I got back to bed and said, we need to do something about it. So that was um, in 2007. And um, in uh, September 2008, I was uh, medically retired uh, because under the Fire Service Act, I could no longer discharge my duties as a firefighter. Kev says that the day after writing his resignation letter, he spoke with a colleague about how he was feeling, and that led him to seek support. I approached a station officer at the same station that I was at, but uh, on a different shift. So when they came on to shift that night, I approached him, someone who I respected and trusted, to um, just to state that I wasn't feeling right uh, physically and mentally. And I know right at that moment, I, I felt absolutely naked. I felt like I didn't have a thing on, uh, stripped hair, I suppose. But um, I knew if I didn't do it, uh, that we wouldn't get back to finding out what, what the problem was. Uh, he suggested to me get in contact with support services for fireys, which at that stage was known as fire care. And I did that. And also to um, visit um, a GP. Uh, so I did both. And... Um, uh, once I had some uh, time granted to me by the GP to have some time off uh, and a referral to see a psychiatrist, it was after then that I um, I was told at that initial visit with the psychiatrist that I had um, PTSD. And that's when I said, I simply asked the question, um, do I take a pill for that? And what do those letters stand for? I had no idea what it was. Kev knew getting additional support was important but it took him a few weeks to come to terms with his diagnosis. I just wanted to make sure that I had the best care 
So um, I actually had to fill out a, um, a work cover claim uh, that would allow me access to a an outpatient uh, day program at a um, local private mental health hospital. Uh, I was two weeks into a four weeks course when I realised that um, this is what I have. This is the, this, that was the time that I accepted that this is what I have. I knew nothing about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder before that. And uh, that was a real education for me. Uh, not that a lot was taken in in the first couple of weeks because I probably thought, you know, this, this is just everyone else, it's not me. But then I realised, no, this is exactly me. It was Kev's family that first noticed the changes in his behaviour. But looking back, he feels he was experiencing symptoms for many years. We have twins now that are 24 years old. And back when Joe was very heavily pregnant with those twins, not long after I'd been to a, um, a double uh, fatality, aircraft fatality um, uh, at Caboolture. And um, my mother, who was staying with us at the time, had approached Joe to say that I was changing. And uh, we, we had no answers for that. Um, and that's about the time I remember having my first anxiety attack or panic attack. And uh, after after that time, I, I suppose there was, it was many times when I became quite different. I was a, I was a super happy person. Um, I was genuinely happy when I joined the job and, and uh, got to a stage where I nothing really brought much joy anymore and I thought that was probably just getting old or, uh, you know, being a father. Um, I had no idea of the things that were, were occurring. I was becoming avoidant of um, social events that I used to enjoy. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't seek out crowds. Uh, I was becoming uh, very reclusive almost, and the um, the anxiety attacks were becoming more and more common, especially over the last couple of years that I was working, up to three and four a week uh, for at least a couple of years prior to any sort of diagnosis. Kev developed depression and anxiety. He would often experience panic attacks after a nightmare, while bouts of emotion could come over him at any time. Often I'd wake up uh, out of, out of a, a, um, a nightmare that consisted of 15 critical incidents that I've been to, and I re- would relive each one of those incidents like it had just occurred. But they were all in a chronological order, so there might have been one in, in uh, 1984 and then a couple in 85 and 87, whatever it might be. And if I went through that list of, of uh, incidents and relive them like they're just happening right now, and I felt like I'd left out some sort of detail and not respected the people involved, I'd have to go back to the, to the start again, back to the first in- incident uh, that occurred. So I was getting no sleep. and So a panic attack for me was often coming out of that nightmare in a, in a lather of sweat with my heart pounding like it's going to beat out of my chest gasping breath and searching for a window or a door where I could get that next breath in. I I would nearly be quite uh, panicked about trying to open a door or or just to get to the fresh air. In fact, right from the start, uh, I was in severe depression and I had no idea. I I might be just driving along in the car and I'd start to tear up or or I'd weep while I was on an exercise bike at work. Joe and I were out one day. We were trading in an old magnet wagon that was a petrol guzzling 
thing that we just didn't enjoy anymore and we were going to pick up a brand new car over at Mount So we went to a um, cafe and to have a coffee just to wait for the new vehicle to be ready for us. And um, I sobbed into my hands for half an hour uh, for no particular reason. It just, it just came out. Um, I didn't recognise uh, depression in myself and probably, probably still don't. But uh, I do know when I'm happy now, so that's good. Kev says his partner Joe has been his rock, but as a father of three, living with PTSD has been challenging at times. If I didn't have Joe, I, I wouldn't be here now. Uh, she, she's been the rock, and especially when our kids, I suppose, have only ever known us uh, or known me to have post-traumatic stress disorder, so they don't know a father any other way. I was probably quite quite stern and abrupt with them. I remember when I went to that that course uh, that I mentioned at the private hospital, I, they were standing on the other side of the modesty bench in the kitchen, and so they, they could hardly even see over it. That's how, how old they were. They are only very young. On on the other side of that uh, modesty bench, uh, I leaned over the top and I said, our dad's got to go to, to um, hospital and get his head fixed up. So um, so they, they weren't really at a stage where they could understand. And I think over over the years and over time, they've learned to accept uh, a father that didn't, not that he didn't wish to go to see their concerts and other things at school, it's just that he couldn't get into the, the auditorium. He couldn't, um, I was someone who just, I couldn't walk in the door. If I did, I'd let them see that I was there and then I'd go outside and, and then they'd ask me afterwards, oh, how, how was I when I was playing the, the violin or whatever it was? And I, I said, oh, you were very good, but um, I could only hear that from the outside. So um, going into crowded rooms wasn't, wasn't a good thing for me. They've worn the uh, brunt of, of all of that um, over a long period of time uh, in their late teens. I individually apologised to each one of them, uh, said that it wasn't, wasn't part of who I wanted to be. It's just that's, that's who I was and, and um, please accept my apologies for, for something that was unknown to me. Um, so uh, they've had to deal with that and Joe's had to pick up the pieces all the way along. When I was off work and, and Joe was a major earner of, of uh, household money, then um, I would have to make sure... She'd ring me every five minutes to make sure that I'd made the kids sandwiches for school and, and got them on the bus. And, and it would be a constant during the day, have you done this, have you done that, because I just wasn't functioning as a human being. Leaving the fire force was like leaving family, but Kev found his close friends were the most supportive of his disorder and still are today. Our own close knit uh, friends and, and certainly the ones that have been the support for me that are still fireys today, that has been really beneficial because I just, it's not something that you um, feel very proud about. Um, it's, um, I, I felt quite ashamed and quite guilty that I couldn't do the job anymore. So I slipped away. Knowing that I worked with on shift knew why I left. I slipped away and never even went back to the station to, to pick up my gear. When you're a fire, you're sort of part of a big uh, family, I suppose, and, and the uh, loss, I felt like I'd lost my identity overnight uh, for who and what I was uh, because I, I, any sort of work I would relate to my work as a fire, which meant often life and death situations. So it didn't 
wish to get back into that, or I couldn't actually get back into many sorts of work at all because I couldn't put my hand out at the end of the day because that came with a certain responsibility that whatever I've done, I've done it well and, and I don't, you know, I can't guarantee that for life. It's a strange sort of feeling. So I, I would do things to help people. Um, we had neighbours across the road, a young younger fellow who did, did some gardening. He had a young family. And I said, well, you know, if you want a hand at any time, I'll give you a hand. While Kev says that he will live with the symptoms of PTSD for the rest of his life, he has found coping mechanisms to help. I suppose I, I've never thought that I was a victim. Uh, I've never, never been a sufferer. It's just something that uh, I needed to get over and, and some, something had challenged me and, and um, I didn't wish it to win. So that's, that's pretty much uh, the way I've, I've viewed it um, always is to uh, just each day get a little bit better. I, I believe and I've been told that you know, my amygdala uh, or my basically the adrenaline pump is, is sort of broken. So I've, I think I'm... And, I, and I'm... I'm still quite hypervigilant. We were watching a movie last night um, and uh, uh, Joe and, and our youngest son uh, were watching the movie and I said, um, did you hear that car door uh, shut? And um, Joe just turned to me and she said, no, you're the one that, that can hear that. We, we can't hear that. So I went out the front and it was actually on a busy road. It was across the road. Um, so I actually um, have to constantly manage that hypervigilance where there's many things even as as we talk now I, I still hear the traffic going past and and I'm conscious of other things that most people wouldn't be aware of and, and so I have to concentrate quite heavily to to make sure that I'm in the moment and and I'm in this um, conversation rather than um, sort of uh, waning off in into the other things that disturb me, I suppose, in a, in a constant fashion. I think when I spoke before about that um, nightmare and, and how I can go into each one of those incidents, like it's just happening right now, so that's still there. So that um, that memory is quite, quite vivid still, but I have um, managed to find a place that I suppose is in my brain, but it feels like it's outside my head where I believe there's this external hard drive, and I can go to that any time I wish to, but I don't give it any credit any other time. So it's a bit like a, uh, just a, a portal that I can go to if I need to, but I seldom need to. That, that probably is, is, is the biggest thing when it comes to uh, if I feel some sort of um, anxiety attack sort of developing. I, I, can, I can see that coming now. Uh, I know what the signs are, uh, and Joe has a really good understanding about that now too. Through his role as a lived experience peer support worker, Kev is able to share his story with others. He feels particularly fortunate to be able to support other fireys and help them process their own experiences. Especially those people that I said that were my closest friends in the job that had supported me all those years have now come back to ask me for the same sort of support because they can hear different things that I have talked to them about over time and now they're uh, realising that they're feeling those same sort of things. So it actually has turned around. So now I'm actually there to help them because, um, you know, I suppose 
bit like one of those things you, you've been there before so um, don't worry about it we, we can get out of this hole uh, yeah so it's it's um, it's probably not about me anymore it's about the other person and, and what they're dealing with and how can, how can we find a way for that person to find their best way out and and it's nice to know if other people have been in those situations before that there is there is some light at the end of the tunnel I'm very uh, fortunate to be able to um, to present to others, and I'm fortunate to be able to talk with others and and not take that on board myself. So there's no vicarious uh, influence back to me, uh, which is, which is great. And I've always been very careful not to mention any um, graphic detail to anyone. So because I'd hate to think that uh, I was the cause of their post-trauma stress. His advice to others would be to get on top of how you're feeling straight away and to take the support available from friends and family or a professional. And, and certainly get onto it straight away. Like, like I said earlier, you know, re- I was a really happy person. But it got to the stage where my kids couldn't find a tickle spot on me. You know, most people got it under their chin or under their arm or under their feet or something. They couldn't find a tickle spot on on me and and there was um, nothing that brought me joy I couldn't couldn't even smile so um, that should have been a telltale sign for me so that was my usual behavior was a very um, jocular person uh, always joking around uh, to be someone who who just uh, couldn't find that anymore so um, uh, the earlier you get onto it uh, the better I've learned so much about myself my emotions who I am and what I need to do to help myself. I think um, it, it, it wouldn't be uh, true uh, credit unless I gave all that credit to Joe. Um, like I said, I'm here today because of Joe. And, and I can laugh again now and smile, which is great. But without that support, and, and uh, I think if, if we have support, don't, um, don't shun it away. Psychologist Natasha says that validating someone's experience with PTSD is an important part of being a support person. And if you or someone you know is concerned, start by speaking to your GP. The most important thing that a loved one or a, or a friend could do if they thought somebody that they knew was experienced PTSD was to just validate their experience. So it can feel really scary and it can feel really out of control when you are experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And sometimes it can be really therapeutic to just say, gosh, that must be really tough not being out of sleep every night because of these awful nightmares that you're having. So just validating the person's experience. So for somebody who might be experiencing symptoms of PTSD and they're concerned that they're really struggling to cope with those symptoms, I think getting some support is always a good step and you can do that initially just by having a chat with the GP and seeing what options are there. It may be getting a referral to a psychologist that specializes in trauma treatment. It may be seeing a psychiatrist and sometimes too it might just be in you know recruiting more people in your life so family members and friends to help to support through those moments as well. If you think you might be suffering from PTSD Book in to see your GP and talk to them. Beyond Blue has a 24-7 helpline to listen, provide information and advice, and to point you in the right direction so you can seek further support. If you suspect a loved one is experiencing PTSD, the best thing to do is to sit and talk to them. We've provided more information in our show notes. 
The most important thing to remember is that PTSD can be managed with the right plan and support. Natasha feels that when it comes to the stigma of PTSD, there's still a long way to go and would like to see the focus shift from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. I think we've done quite a good job at reducing some of the stigma um, relating to particularly complex trauma. I think we've made a lot of gains in comparison to some of the other mental health challenges. I still think that there is some stigma, though, when it comes to people who have experienced trauma in that they should just be able to get over it or just be able to go to work or just be able to look after the kids. And I think when you're experiencing a serious mental health challenge like PTSD, you can't just get over it. You do need the support in working through the symptoms, in finding ways of managing what's going on for you. And I think if people could just get over it, they would. And I know even for me, I'm someone who myself has experienced um, quite severe anxiety and some days I can't just get over it either. So I think that's a big piece of work that we still need to to improve on and, and that, that shift of what's happened to you rather than what's wrong with you, I think really works to reduce the stigma. Looking after your mental well-being is important as it allows you to offload stresses you may have and build up your resilience. Natasha says it can be as simple as eating well and connecting with others. When we look after our mental well-being, it gives us some resilience. It gives us a bit of a buffer. It allows for our cup to be less full so that if we are faced with stress or a future traumatic event, we're best I guess, equipped to manage that situation. However, if we go through life and we don't look after ourselves, our cup is full all of the time, we have no buffer, we have less resilience, and it means when we're faced with a stressor, we're just not going to be able to have the tolerance to deal with it effectively. Every single human can work at maintaining a good mental well-being. I think there are several things that we can do in order to maintain wellness we can eat well, we can get good sleep, we can you know, be physically active, we can stay really connected and have good relationships and we can engage in activities like mindfulness or meditation where we choose where to focus our attention, where to focus our thoughts and our emotions. So we're kind of living life in the present moment. We're not caught up or worried about what happened yesterday, last week, last month. And we're not worrying about what might happen tomorrow, next week, next month. So I think everybody benefits from that. For Kev, it's about getting out in nature, being active and helping others. We generally go for a walk each day, Joe and and myself. Go out there and um, at least half an hour and we um, we solve the world's problems while we're out, uh, which is good. We just can't solve our own at at times, but um, that's very helpful for us um, or for me. And, um, and for Joe too, I, I think. Um, I like to listen to music. At times it can be quite diverse, um, from uh, uh, heavy metal or Led Zeppelin to uh, the next moment might be um, uh, classical music or Enya. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, depends on how I feel in the moment. And I, I do enjoy um, uh, fishing, beach fishing more than anything else. Uh, surf, beach fishing. I don't mind a game of golf every now and again. And I like to be active. I like to have a purpose 
uh, yesterday I um, painted a bedroom, put a bed together and, and slept on it last night. So um, I like to uh, be active and if someone's in need, I'll um, give them a hand. If you'd like to know more about your mental well-being and simple activities that you can add to your daily routine to help strengthen your well-being, head to our website qld.gov.au forward slash mental wellbeing. You'll find a link in our show notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of My Amazing Body, Mental Health and Wellbeing. It's the final of our five-part series. We hope this special series gave you a better insight into mental health conditions and helped show you how you can strengthen your own mental wellbeing. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to give us a rating or review in your podcast app. Did you guess this episode's brain teaser? Your help is needed to turn over a new leaf. The answer is a book. Congratulations if you guessed that tricky tale. Thank you to Natasha Briffer and the team at Metro South Hospital and Health Service for lending their time and expertise to this episode. Thanks to Beyond Blue for connecting us with volunteer speaker Kev. And a very special thanks to Kev for sharing his experience with PTSD. My Amazing Body is brought to you by Queensland Health. Thanks to my podcast colleagues, producer Jess, Carol, our audio technician, and Helen on music and sound effects.